reading from uh, Philippians and chapter 2, first 11 verses. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. About 15 months ago, I had the opportunity of going to Philippi and visiting the site to which of the church to which this epistle we've been looking at this weekend was sent. Took a few photographs. And uh, it was a very, very strategic church and a very strategic epistle, as I shall try to show later on. But you can see behind me the marketplace where Paul was beaten, that very place in that site. And in front of it, or behind it, those tall pillars there are one of the four Christian churches which were by the third century built in that town. Now, we can see to another couple of pictures of uh, Philippi. On the left is the place where the very first person to be converted to Christianity in Europe, Lydia, was baptised. We're virtually certain that that is the site of her baptism. It's the nearest point the river comes to the city. And then on the, uh, the, on the right-hand side, the supposed dungeon into which Paul was thrown, where the earthquake took place in the middle of the night and the jailer got converted. I don't think we're nearly so sure that that was the actual place, but uh, it's all good for tourist guides, you know, to show you those things. So a very strategic place. When we look at the whole of the Bible, the great perspective of the Bible, this is one of the greatest passages in the Bible that speaks to us about Christ, who he was and what he did and why he did it. And the other context that we find here is that this church, as we were reminded yesterday, both by Paul Hinton and by Tim, this church was a church was facing persecution. Already, even when Paul was there, he was taken into the, 
the, the forum or the marketplace and beat, beaten and then thrown in prison as was Silas who was with him. And you know, if you're a Christian, you may face persecution. There's a verse in the Bible in Timothy's the epistle to Timothy, the second epistle, which says this. All, he says, he says this basically, those who have lived godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I take that as a promise, not just a prophecy. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. This church particularly, because as you know, and I'm sure that David Donigani on the, in the first talk on Friday, if you were here by then, will have said this to you, this church was the first Christian church to be established in Europe. Lydia was the first person to trust Christ in Europe. Previous to that, the Christian church had got established in the Middle East, Palestine, and particularly in Asia Minor, where Turkey is today. But this was a very strategic move that Paul was called across in the vision of the Macedonian man to come across and to bring the gospel to Europe. And had that not happened, probably we here today would not have been part of the Christian church and would not have heard the gospel. It was very strategic. And I'm sure that Satan was by no means indifferent to that. It was a strategic move. And in the history of the Christian church in the following centuries, the great strength of the Christian church for many centuries has been Europe. Now it's less so, tragically. And I want to say this morning, and I don't want to be a scaremonger in any sense, but I do believe that here in England today, we are now at a stage where the Christian church is coming under pressure in a way that it has not done for many, many centuries. We find that in universities, there are attempts made to outlaw or push out outside, outside the buildings of the university the Christian Union. That's happened in a number of places. We find that there's pressure by so-called political correctness. So far as I'm concerned, political correctness doesn't interest me, because what we're concerned with is biblical correctness, is it not? And political correctness in certain respects is beginning to attack the moral and ethical standards that we find in Scripture. And there are certainly those already who, because of principle, have had to lose their jobs because they will not conform with certain legislation that has gone through Parliament. Now, people may not be physically tortured for the faith, but my personal conviction is, if you look at the trend and you look at the information passed out by that very helpful organisation, the Christian Institute and the Lawyers Christian Fellowship and other groups, I think it's very clear that the tendency in our society is for a, le a lowering of tolerance of Christian beliefs and not only Christian beliefs but Christian ethical standards. And I really do think that as young people, as you sit here, the vast majority of you, we have to be prepared for it becoming more difficult. I do not know how long we'll be free to preach on beaches these days. How long some of us will be free to preach in the streets. And even if we do, how long we should be free to say all that we feel we ought to say and have to say. And we need to be prepared for these things. And what Paul is trying to do, of course, is to prepare the church or equip them for the persecution that they, like himself, 
were experiencing. And virtually every church that Paul established in Greece, what is now modern Greece, whether it's Thessalonica or Corinth, there was persecution. And if you read through the epistles in the New Testament, many of them, particularly those of Peter, were written to prepare churches for persecution. And the book of Revelation, I know there are various ways in which people understand and interpret the the symbolical material that's in the book of Revelation, but I think particularly it was intended to help Christians who were suffering acute persecution. And it was written, of course, by John, who was already imprisoned in the Isle of Patmos for his faith. And Paul says here something about Christ. And what he says about Christ has got to do with what advice he's giving these people when they face persecution. You see, we were reminded yesterday, in verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul said this, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I am come to see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast with one spirit, in one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I was very interested on the day of the bombing attacks in the tube trains in London. The day after, Betty Boothroyd, former Speaker of the House of Commons, was unveiling a statue to, I forget who it was to, but anyway, it doesn't matter particularly. She was unveiling a statue in London. And... Um, Referring to the events of the previous days in the tube trains and those who've been killed, and looking back to the Second World War, I remember now, I think the, the memorial was to women who had died in the Second World War. And she said, referring to the Second World War, World War Betty Boothroyd said, We did not flinch then, and we will not flinch now. She's got a very determined uh, manner, the lady. And uh, almost a Churchillian manner, I would have said. She reminded me of him. And that's what Paul is saying. We may face these things, but we have to stand firm. But he, puts, he takes it further than that, because he suggests to them that their standing firm will depend on their relationships with one another. That they can be a tremendous help to one another in such a time as that. And therefore, he goes on to say in our chapter this morning, in verses two, uh, 1 to 3, he says, If there be any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind, and let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let other, each esteem others better than himself. And let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And what Paul is saying here is that in standing together in the face of persecution, they can be a tremendous help to one another. I read a whole book written recently on the theme, Persecution. It was looking at the situation of evangelical Christians in every part of the world, particularly in America and Britain, with this thought that I've mentioned already, that there might be an increase of the pressure that's on us in that way. And in the, in the book, it gave a number of stories, authenticated stories, of the sufferings of Christians in Europe, particularly of the families of pastors who were arrested by the secret police, the KGB, and thrown into prison, often for many years, and how the other Christians rallied round the mother and the children of the pastor, the wife, I should say, and the children of the pastor, and over many years fed them and looked after them and cared for them. There was a solidarity there in that situation. 
My son Alwyn went to Romania this summer and heard similar stories there in Romania, which is one of the most difficult countries during the communist era. And I think there is here what we might call an emotional aspect of supporting one another if we face opposition. There is what Paul calls here consolation, or it can be translated encouragement, and comfort, and affection, and mercy, which could be translated love, tenderness, and compassion. That is, that when there is persecution or a threat of opposition, that is the moment for us to gather around one another in fellowship and encourage one another. I think it's a very dangerous thing, you know, if ever a Christian is um, an isolated Christian. We need to be in fellowship anyway, at any time. One of the purposes of Christian fellowship is to support and encourage one another. One of the purposes of this weekend is to support and encourage one another. And that's what Paul is saying there ought to be in the face of persecution. And he also says that there's not only an emotional aspect, but in verse 2 of of the chapter, fulfill my joy by being like-minded and of the same love being of one cord and one mind, that there is no, that there's an, a mental aspect, that this is no time for to be arguing with one another about secondary issues and trivial matters and falling out over them. There's an emotional aspect and a an, an mental aspect and trivial things and secondary things, they need to be set aside so that we get together and encourage one another and strengthen one another in the face of the opposition. And also there's a negative side to it. He said, it is a time, if we're facing persecution, and this is where we come to thinking of what Christ has done. There is a time to set aside selfish ambition, verse 3, and conceitedness, and to have, on the other hand, lowliness of mind, putting others and their interests first. That's what he says. Time to be thinking of others, not just of ourselves. He doesn't rule out, incidentally, you'll notice if you read it carefully, looking after our own interests. But he says we should put the interests of others ahead of ours. We have to stand fast in one spirit and in one mind, striving together for the gospel in the face of opposition and persecution. So where does Christ fit together in all of this? Well, let's just see what he says about Christ. He talks about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did. And he tells us, first of all, something about the status of Christ before he came to earth as a man. And he says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, we need to understand this about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was in the form of God. Now, that does not mean that he was just like God. It means he was, in his essence, really and truly God. Okay, he came to live here as a man, but he never ceased to be truly God. And therefore, when from time to time Jesus said or did things that made people realise that he was claiming to be God or to be equal with God, he was not robbing God of something. And when we talk about robbing people, and I remember being on a promenade once in Spain and my, my wife put her handbag down on the seawall and sat down beside it and I was sitting next to her and the handbag was between the two of us and the next time we looked there was no handbag. Now we were robbed of something that properly belonged to us. Unfortunately there was £300 in the handbag so it was a serious matter, relatively. But when Jesus 
forgave the sins of the paralytic man who was let down through the roof of the house, you remember? He forgave his sin. And the Pharisees said, oh, you know, only God can forgive sins. They recognized that when he said, I'm forgiving your sins to that man, he was setting himself on a par with God himself. He was making a claim to be God. But he was not robbing God because it was true. Jesus said, I and the Father are one, John 10.30. John's Gospel begins with these words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jehovah's Witnesses say, oh no, that means uh, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. I'm proud to say that the, uh, I always say to them, can you turn up the Greek and tell me what that actually says? Because the word A is not there. It says the word was God. They shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew 1.23 For in him, says Colossians 2 verse 9, one of the great passages also about Jesus, for in him dwells all the fullness of God bodily. It's very strong, there's no doubt about it. He was God. Now there are some important words in this passage and these important words are the word but and the word therefore. And if you want to follow the logic of what's being said about Jesus, look out for those words. So it says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but... And that's the turning point in what he's saying here. It tells us that Jesus laid aside his status. Now, let's put it this way. If the Queen decided uh, to leave Buckingham Palace and come and live in your house and just live like the rest of the family and forget about the, oh, your majesty and, and all this stuff, you know, and being treated like that and have no servants and just live like an ordinary member of the household, she would still be Queen. Because she'll be Queen until she's dead. And the Lord Jesus Christ laid aside the trappings, if you like, of his status that he might be here with us. And it tells us, therefore, that he made himself of no reputation. Verse 7. Matthew Henry, one of the greatest commentators on the scriptures, said this. He, that is Jesus, divested himself, that means put off, all the glories of heaven in order to clothe himself with the rags of human nature. He did it voluntarily. He put those things aside. He came from the throne of heaven and he came into this earth and he was of no reputation. There was no point in the life of Jesus publicly where he made himself big or went about and acted as if he was the king or the Roman governor or something like that. He never did that kind of thing. He lived like an ordinary man. And why did he do that? There's a lovely illustration that Billy Graham, the, the American evangelist, used to use. And he tells the story of how one day he was walking along and in the countryside and he tripped over a small anthill. Now, any small anthill has many thousands of ants in it. And in doing so, the anthill was destroyed and as he looked down he saw that many of the ants were dead and others were maimed and others were writhing in agony and so on and, and uh, you might think it's silly but he felt compassion for the ants he destroyed their home he'd injured many some were killed and he thought oh I wish that I could do something to help them but I can't because I'm so big and they're so little but you know Jesus overcame that sort of problem he was so big God in heaven, 
You know, we sing that chorus with the children, oh, God is so great, you know. But he made himself a man. And he bridged that gap and he came here. He assumed the most inconspicuous and humble form of human existence, not in Herod's court or in Pontius Pilate's garrison headquarters, not rich but poor, born in a filthy stable, a carpenter, a humble carpenter, in Galilee, the most despised region of the country, and we're told he had nowhere to lay his head when he was going about in his itinerant ministry. He didn't have any smart five-star hotel or even a motel like some of you had last night to go and make himself comfortable in. We sing, don't we, sometimes, you laid aside your majesty, gave up everything for me, suffered at the hands of those you had created. So the Lord Jesus came down. And if you follow this passage, you'll see how he went down and down and down. Because it goes on to say that he took on himself the form of a bond servant. That's what the Lord Jesus did. Verse 7, he took on himself the form of a bond servant. Now, I looked this up deliberately. The word in the original language means a slave. Now, of course, Jesus wasn't literally a slave of the Romans. But he made himself, a, the thing about a slave or a bondservant is he has no rights. He, 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 he's, he's just unprotected, really. And he chose to live as a real man, and it tells us in Scripture that he was tempted or tested in all ways, like as we are, yet without sin. Amazing, isn't it? We can't understand this kind of thing. Charles Wesley, in one of his most famous hymns, used the phrase that one of the founders of the work here, Werner Wright, often used to quote, I remember. God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. We can't understand it. We see through a glass darkly, we'll understand when we get to heaven, but we can't understand it now, how God could become a man, and even just like a servant. And it goes on to tell us, about the Lord Jesus Christ, that not only take on the, the form of a servant, but he came in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of a man. Now, that doesn't mean that he looked like a man, but he wasn't one really. He was a real man. He was tempted in all ways, like as we are, yet without sin. We, he, he, the frailties of the body, he died, he suffered, he knew what pain meant. He knew what bereavement meant. He wept over those who died. He, he understood everything about us. And you know, when things are really difficult in life and in the most difficult experiences we go through, we can always remember that Jesus understands it because he was a man. And he suffered bereavements and he suffered pain and he suffered death. He understands these things. And as if all that were not humbling enough, he went down further. He says he humbled himself. And that is one of the key verses in the passage. He humbled himself. And it goes on to say, not only did he humble himself, but it says he humbled himself even to the point of death. He became obedient to death. Again, we have a mystery. We wonder, how can God be a man? God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. Another line of Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer. Tis mystery all. I think you sang this yesterday, didn't you? Tis mystery all. The immortal dies. Now that's a contradiction in terms. How can an immortal person die? He's no longer immortal. But he rose again. 
Jesus humbled himself to the point of death. And if we recognise that death was one of the consequences of sin, and he was perfect, he went through an experience that we face because of the consequences of sin. And he died. And then it comes to the lowest point of all, and the climax of all of his saying. He goes on to say, even the death of a cross. Now, no form of execution has ever been devised, I think, so cruel, so agonising, so humiliating, so lingering, and if I may say so, dehumanising as crucifixion. It's very probable that they were crucified naked, which in itself, an exposure of that kind publicly to a Jew would be absolutely unthinkable. Galatians 3.13 quotes a verse in the Old Testament that says, Cursed is every one that hangs upon a tree. And Jesus was not merely a martyr to a cause. And I ask this question now, therefore, why exactly did Jesus die on that cross? And I want to say this morning that Jesus died a penal death. When we say somebody dies a penal death, it means that they receive the death penalty for some, normally, for some offence created. Death is a punishment for an offence. I'm sure we've all been following this tragic case that's been going on of the abduction of the little girl in Portugal. And the family, of course, live very near here. And I can't, of course, know, nor can any of us, whether the parents are guilty of what they are apparently being or rumoured to be accused of. But imagine if those parents are innocent, and I tend to suspect that is the case, but I don't know. But if those parents are innocent, suppose they were brought to court and suppose they were convicted and suppose they were to suffer the penalty, which would be a long imprisonment. It's bad enough to suffer a penalty for something you deserve, isn't it? But if you're innocent, how much more difficult it is Now we await, of course, the outcome of that. But there are those today who are telling us that when Jesus died on the cross, he did not die a punishment. And there are those who say that it would be an example of cosmic child abuse for God to take his son and punish him for some sins he never committed. And I want to say that I believe that to be nonsense, and I want to show you why. The Bible makes it very clear that Jesus died for the sins of others and not for his own. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment of our peace or the chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes, that's the whipping, we were healed. We are healed and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now if I said nothing more, I don't think anything could be plainer than that. Jesus was punished for us in our behalf. And it tells us in the, last one, in the last book of the Bible, Revelations chapter 5 and verse 6, that when we'll be in heaven, and with those who already are in heaven, and they look at the throne of God in heaven, they will see in the midst of the throne a lamb as if it had been slain. And I believe what that means is this, that in heaven, the very wounds that Jesus had in his hands and feet and side will be visible. And we shall remember that he took our place and that that penalty was borne by him for us. And to those high-profile speakers and conference speakers that try to suggest to us that it was not a penal substitution that Jesus made, 
I would remind them that in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the great statement of the Christian faith made in the Puritan era, it says this, the Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he once offered up to God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father. And a lovely prayer in the Church of England, the traditional prayer book, the Book of Common Prayer, in the communion service form. He made there, that's Jesus, a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, that's an offering, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Satisfaction means satisfying justice. It was a penal substitution for you and for me. In my place condemned he stood, says the old hymn, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. I don't know whether any of you have, uh, have been doing English literature at O or A level. Sometimes one of the books that's set is Charles Dickens' book, The Tale of Two Cities. I read it again recently with this talk in mind. An interesting story. I have to sim- summarise it and make it very simple because otherwise it would take me a long time to tell you. But um, one pretty young lady has the uh, delight of being loved by two men and has two suitors for her hand in marriage. Perhaps some of you have been in that situation. Obviously she had to make a choice between Charles and Sidney. That's the names of them. Charles was the descendant of a French aristocratic family of the 18th century. Sidney was a, a London lawyer. She loved Charles and she married Charles. Sidney, who was a very generous man, vowed that in no improper way he could never subdue his love for this lady, but he respected her marriage and her choice. And all he said was that ever, because of his love for her, there came the opportunity of serving her in any way, he would do it even to the extent of the giving of his life. Now Charles, the husband of Lucy, the heroine, as I said, was the descendant of a French aristocratic party, uh, family. In 1789, the peasants of France, who had been brutally treated by the aristocracy, rose in rebellion and the French Revolution took place. And as it became, unfortunately, more and more excessive, it began to be a death penalty to have been related to any aristocrat or any aristocratic family. Now, because Charles was French, there came a moment when somebody in his family in France was in great danger and he felt, despite the risks, he would have to go to Paris and try and help this person. He went, and you can guess what happened. Somebody spotted him, denounced him as an aristocrat. He was sent to prison and condemned to the guillotine. When Sidney heard of this, because he had important and influential contacts in Paris, he went over to Paris and, you know, by a strange coincidence, the two men looked rather similar. Similar height, similar colour hair, you know. He got a permit to visit Charles in the prison on the night before his death. He went into his cell and he persuaded Charles, for the sake of his wife and the child that they had by then, to change his clothes from his filthy prison clothes and take on Sidney's clothes and adjust his hair a bit So he looked just like Sidney and Charles walked out when the jailer came to end the visit. Charles walked out free and Sidney went to his death the next day 
at the guillotine. He died a substitute and he died and paid a penalty that someone else should have paid. Now this doctrine is under attack and I believe that we need to stand very firm in our commitment to the belief that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world and in the councils of eternity the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who are one were in absolute agreement voluntarily that that's what the Lord Jesus should do. The cross shows the utmost extent of the humiliation of Jesus and we shall remember it in a few minutes at the Lord's table. Now we have the book and very briefly now we have the therefore. And it tells us what Christ achieved. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Christ has returned now to his original status and position in heaven to the throne Highly exalted. And it says he's been given a name that is above every name. When I watched the funeral of the, the late Queen Mother, Queen Elizabeth, that very old lady, 101 years old, I think she was, much loved, at her funeral they read her titles, as normally done at the funeral of royalty. She was the Queen Mother. She was the Duchess of York. She was a Knight of the Garter. And in fact, the reading of her titles took some three or four minutes. The titles of the Lord Jesus are the highest possible titles. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He assumes absolute authority. And all believers, you and me, we, if we trust in Christ as our Saviour, one day we shall be before him and I'm sure we will cast ourselves down before him and bow our knees to him. Sadly, there will be those who have continued their rebellion against God and in this life have never bowed the knee to Christ. But they will have to bow the knee on that great day. And everybody will confess, the Bible says, and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, conclusion. What does all of this mean? for us. This passage appears to be about Christ but it is really about you and me. Even though it's one of the greatest passages about Christ in Scripture. Because he says this, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Now your mind is tremendously important. The Bible says as a man thinks in his heart, in his mind, so he is. The way you think makes you the kind of person you are. That's why it says later on in Philippians, whatsoever things are pure and lovely and so on, think on these things. And what he's saying is this, as we confront persecution, we need to think the way Christ thought. And he was prepared to pay this tremendous cost for the benefit of others. And Paul is saying, and as we come to the Lord's table, when we face the tough times... It's tremendously important to take that position Jesus take. One, to, one is to be prepared to go through it, and that's not easy. And the other is to do everything we can to the utmost extent, whatever it costs us, to enable others and to strengthen others who are around us by standing firm with them and empathising with them and helping them and encouraging them through that experience. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And uh, I just want to conclude by reading two very short choruses. We sometimes sing, and particularly in the Irish speech missions, the chorus, To be like Jesus, to be like Jesus, all I ask, 
to be like him. And an older hymn. May the mind of Christ, my Saviour, live in me from day to day, by his love and power controlling all I do and say. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. Him exalting, self-abasing, this is victory. We come to the Lord's table. As for him, we remember that ultimate sacrifice he made, that penal substitution on the cross for us in the bread and the wine. And as for ourselves, we seek strength at the Lord's table, I believe, to let that mind be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. And his mind was that he humbled himself. May God bless us together as we gather around his table.